Please open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We have the joy as we come into this month where we focus on the incarnation of Christ to study the incarnate Christ, to continue studying Mark's record of the incarnate Christ. And this morning we have the privilege of seeing Christ and His power, His overcoming power over evil and how great the power of evil is, but how much greater the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll begin this morning by just reading this account of Jesus in the Gadarene region as he confronts a legion of demons and displays his power over the supernatural, displays his power over the spirits. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, And they begged him, saying, "'Send us to the pigs, let us enter them.' So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country." And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. 
Well, one of the uh, tragedies of incarnation hymns is that we usually only sing them in December. There's rich doctrine in what we've already sung this morning. Listen to this stanza from the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And that stanza captures the reality that there is a real enemy of God's people. There is an arch enemy of God, Satan, Satan and his fallen angels. And Christ came to defeat the power of Satan. Christ came to break the power of evil, to deliver those who had been captive by the fear of death. And he did that. He did it ultimately at the cross. And those in Christ are free from the dominion of evil. We're free from the dominion of sin. We're free to live for Christ. And we're free to glorify God in our bodies. God in Christ accomplished a great salvation when Christ came and defeated evil. And what we have in this account is a display of Christ's power, a vivid display of Christ's power over evil during his earthly ministry. The, the malicious desire of Satan and of the demons is evident. Their power is evident in this passage, but Christ's power is greater. At the same time, we recognize that even now, satanic and demonic evil dominates the world system, the organization of the world that is against God and against Christ. We're told in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world, the cosmos, the organization of evil, The world lies in the power of the evil one. The unsaved are dominated by evil. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4, as Paul reminds us of our condition outside of Christ, he says that we are dominated by the prince of the the power of the air, the spirit that is working in the children of disobedience. That is the condition of every person outside of Christ, of every person who is dead in their trespasses and sins. They walk not neutrally, but they walk influenced according to the mandates, the priorities, the dictates of Satan, the spirit of this world, and of his emissaries. Furthermore, the church fights an ongoing spiritual battle against Satan. In Acts chapter 5, early in the church, Ananias and Sapphira come and lay some money before the apostles. 
And they claim that they are giving all that they've given from a sale of land. But they're lying. And Peter says to Ananias, as he is lying about what he's giving, as he's being a duplicitous hypocrite before the church of God, he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie against the Holy Spirit? And so from the inception of the church, we find, we find that there is still an ongoing battle. And often the, the way that that battle exhibits itself is in the duplicitous hypocrisy of people who want to have a good show, but are evil and are sinning against the Spirit of God. We're told in Ephesians chapter 6, in verses 10 through 12, that we need to stand firm in the Lord because of the deceitful schemes of the devil. And how does he exercise those schemes? Well, if you go backwards in Ephesians in chapters 4, 5, and 6 and look at what God commands his people in Christ to do, those are the very areas where God's people must remain vigilant against the attacks of Satan and the attacks of evil. We're also told in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, that our enemy, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He seeks to keep God's people from being effective in their work for the glory of God. The unsaved are dominated by evil. The church fights an ongoing spiritual battle against Satan. But what this passage encourages us with who are in Christ, it declares to Christians, it declares to those who are in Christ, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. And to unbelievers, to those outside of Christ, to those who are still dominated by Satan and by evil, the the invitation goes out, the declaration goes out, the command goes out. The kingdom of God is at hand. Christ has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There is a way of escape from the dominion of Satan, from the dominion of darkness. It's by repenting and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, by turning to Christ who Peter says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Repent and believe the gospel. Christ, Christ is over evil. Christ delivers from evil. And one day, all evil will forever and forever be placed in the place prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. So what we have in this passage, immediately after stilling the storm, after declaring he is king over the storms, Jesus displays his authority over spirits. Christ is king over spirits, over evil spirits, just as he is king over the storms. What we're going to see from this passage, the theme this morning, 
is that Jesus delivers from evil. Jesus delivers from evil to display his mercy. Look at verse 19. The end of the passage, as the man who was delivered desires to be with him, and Jesus commissions him to go and tell. Look at what he says. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy. 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 On one dominated by by the devil, on one filled with a legion of spirits, the Lord had mercy. Jesus delivers from evil to display mercy. Let's look in the first section here in verses 1 through 13. As Jesus confronts evil, we see, first of all, concerning evil, human strength and ingenuity cannot subdue evil. Human strength and ingenuity cannot subdue evil. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus and his disciples, as the storm ended and the night passed and day came, they come to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And if you are familiar at all with with the geography of the area, you have the Sea of Galilee that is in the north of Israel, and from the south side of the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River flows down to the Dead Sea. And so Jesus and his disciples are on the Sea of Galilee, and around the Sea of Galilee, there are a number of cities. You can think almost of uh, of the Sea of Galilee, think of it in, in terms of, of uh, the outer belt of Cincinnati and just fill, fill inside of it with water. Um, and that kind of gives you a picture of what's happening here. And in, in our city, in Cincinnati, in the Cincinnati area, you have various regions around the outer belt. You have the north side of Westchester and Mason. You have the east side and you have the west side. Then you have the northern Kentucky area. And each of those regions we generally describe, and everyone knows what you're talking about. You know, West Westchester Mason, okay, that's the north side of Cincinnati. Northern Kentucky is the south side of Cincinnati, but obviously northern Kentucky. And the east side is self-explanatory in the west side. But within those regions are also specific cities. And so when Jesus is going to the area of the Gerasenes, he's going to the southwest region of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, there was a town that was about 37 miles southwest of the, the, uh, of the lake that was the capital, but likely where Jesus ended up landing and with his disciples was a small town and part of that region of the Gerasenes, also known as the Decapolis because of the ten major cities, uh, on, on the edge of the sea, uh, an area that was very mountainous, uh, very hilly, um, but there was a steep bank into the sea, and that is what uh, is described with the pigs that will, will come across here that ultimately drown. They went into the sea down 
the steep bank. But this, this area is, is an area that would, would have been nominally Jewish, but heavily influenced by, by Roman uh, infiltration and also uh, Greek Hellenization. So it was an area that, uh, that was dominated by evil, by wrong thinking, and that's evident uh, with the evil spirits that confront Jesus as he comes. Verse 2 says, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So these tombs that are often placed in hills, caves, and maniacs would dwell in those areas. That would be their living quarters. They go from tomb to tomb. Um, you know, there, there were no insane asylums then. The tombs were the insane asylum. And if you weren't already insane, you probably would be after dwelling in the tombs. And this man was there in the tombs. He met Christ. And we're given some background in verse 3, beginning in verse 3. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with, with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying and cutting himself with stones. We find some very sobering realities here concerning evil. Again, the, the point that we're considering is that human strength and ingenuity cannot subdue evil. We see the reality of demons. This man is possessed with an unclean spirit. He's described in verse 15 as a man who is demon-possessed. This isn't a theology of demons, but just a couple of things to note about demons in this passage. Demons are real beings. They possess emotion. When Jesus addresses the beings to come out, they desire him, verse 10, they beg him earnestly not to send him out of the country. And from Luke's account, we're told that they begged Christ to not torment them. They, they know their destiny, they know who Christ is, and they fear, they fear the ultimate torment. And so these demons, they are emotional beings, and they have a will, they have desire. Again, in verse 10, they're begging him earnestly not to send them out of the country. They want to stay in this region where they have infiltrated, this region that they are comfortable in, if you will. And so they're asking Christ, they're under his authority, they're asking him not to be sent away, but in doing so, they're expressing a will, a desire. And they are obviously intellectual. They're able to reason. They're able to communicate. And likely the communication that's taking place is through the physical means of the person who is possessed by these demons, yet they are still speaking to Christ. When Jesus commands the demon to come out of the man, 
Jesus asks, what is your name? So a question is being presented to these demons, and the reply is, my name is Legion, for we are many. There's a response to the question, and even as the answer is given, here's my name, and here's the significance of my name. We are many. We are a host of demons that dwells in this man. Demons are real beings who possess emotion, will, and intellect, yet unclean and evil, completely given over to the purposes of Satan, fallen angels, fallen spiritual beings that are unredeemable, who will never be redeemed. Hebrews 2 tells us that Christ came not to help the angels, but Christ came to deliver Abraham's seed. This is the reality of demons. Scripture makes it clear that there are spiritual beings, unseen, that indwell, but that possess emotion, will, and intellect. And the nature of these demons is that they are defiling. The man is described in verse 2 as having an unclean spirit. He is defiled, and, and defilement permeates the emphasis of this account of demons. The demon is described as unclean. The man lives in the tombs, which would have been unclean to Jews because of the contact with the dead. And then, of course, they enter the pigs, which are unclean, forbidden for the Jews. The demons are defiling, and the whole region is a is a defiled region because of the Roman infiltration and because of the Hellenization, the Greek influence of that area. This is an unclean area in the Jewish mind, and these demons are defiling. This is what evil does. It defiles. It makes unclean. It is a, a direct contrast to the holiness and to the purity of Christ and of God, the character of God and who he is. But not only are demons defiling, they're also destructive. And we see that very clearly in this passage. In verse 3, we're told again, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often bound, been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. And then in verse 5, the man, night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, was always crying out. And think of crying out as in an unearthly shriek that reverberated in the hills. A supernatural amplification from the legion of demons that, that dwelt within this man. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Demons are defiling. They're destructive, breaking chains with, with inhuman strength, with supernatural strength, cutting, causing the man to cut himself, to harm himself, self-harm, and killing. 
When they requested to go into the pigs, what happened to the pigs? Verse 13 says that the unclean spirits came out of the man and they entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Demons are defiling and destructive. Folks, it's no joke. It's no joke. And unfortunately, because of our fascination with images and our culture, I'm sure that probably no one in here hasn't at one time or another seen images portraying demons. And even descriptions from such harmful books like This Present Darkness and things like that produced in the 90s give us a very wrong and unbiblical perspective of demons, and it often minimizes and mitigates the actual reality of these beings. You, you, can't, you can't control them. They're defiling. They're destructive. They're there to kill, to destroy. They hate God. They hate God's creation. They hate everything about God and everyone who serves God. And even as we think about the nature of these beings, they are spirit beings. They're unseen. and I don't even know how to describe spirit beings except to say that they are spirit beings. But a legion of them and that number in Roman, in, in the Roman mind, a legion of Roman soldiers was 6,000 soldiers. Doesn't necessarily mean there were 6,000 demons in that man, but there were a lot in one man. And when they were sent out of the man and into the pigs, 2,000 pigs immediately went down the hill to kill themselves. These are spirit beings, and as such, they were able to enter one man. They were able to enter people and animals, and that was the evidence of their work. No one saw the demons apart from what was happening in the man and apart what was from what happened to the pigs. But what we find in this passage, and this is the value, there's so many values, not the value, but one of the wonderful values of the Gospels is that we see in vivid detail the true unveiled nature of satanic and demonic activity. This is, this is what, folks, this is what evil looks like. And it's awful, it's destructive, it's unclean, it's unseen, and yet absolutely harmful. One commentator in describing this scene says that this is the, one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in the Bible, and it's because of the evil of the unclean spirits at work. These are the vivid details of the domain of darkness, the domain that Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 13, you, you were taken from the domain of darkness and you were moved to the kingdom of the Son of God. 
What a deliverance. What a deliverance. But when we understand the nature of evil, when we understand the nature of the domain of darkness, we are reminded that we cannot deal with evil through reform and behavior modification. Those things do not change character. And there are a number of applications for us just as we consider, again, this reality, this sobering reality that human strength and ingenuity cannot subdue evil. Think about our unsaved children. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 encourages, encourages saved spouses to remain married to unsaved spouses because, he says, your children are sanctified through your presence. And what he means there is not that they're immediately or uh, without exception saved. What he's talking about is the influence that a regenerate spouse has in the home. And what a blessing that is. It is a blessing, children, for you to have parents who love the Lord. They are your gift to you from God. They are used by God to restrain the evil impulses of your heart, of your unregenerate heart, if you're outside of Christ. And so I don't want to minimize the, the, the value and the blessing that the Bible states it is to have, a, a, to have parents who love the Lord. But, but we have to recognize that our children outside of Christ are still under the domain of darkness. They are utterly incapable in their own will and their own desire of turning to God because Scripture says there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeks after God. And furthermore, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're told that those outside of Christ are blinded by the God of this world to reject the glorious gospel of Christ. And so we need to come to grips with the reality that our unsaved children, that our unsaved children are under the domain of darkness. They are still walking according to the spirit of this age, according to the God of this world. And the importance of that is to recognize that there is no human means by which we can be the salvation to our children. We can't deliver them. We can't control them. And often what, what takes place as children grow and as young children, they're compliant because that's what young children do. But as they grow and mature and become independent, their nature as those under the domain of darkness becomes apparent. And the one and only hope, and it is a hope, is that Christ will deliver them. And so as 
parents and as a church with those that we love, those that are near us, we have to remember evil can't be conquered by human means. Our children are in the domain of darkness if they're not in Christ. And so we must hold forth the gospel. We must tell them of their condition. We must show them what they are outside of Christ. We must show them what the end is of those outside of Christ and call them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe it was Susanna Wesley, and she was quite a fireball from what Charles and John say, but at the table as she would disciple her children, she would tell them, don't expect me to side with you on the day of judgment if you have rejected Christ. I will side with God. I have to. I have to side with God. And that was a righteous plea from a godly mother telling her children what their condition was apart from Christ and calling them to repentance. This is the nature of evil. We cannot impose salvation on our children. We must call them to repentance in Jesus Christ. There's nothing humanly that we can do apart from declaring what great things God has done for us and how merciful the God of heaven is. Human ingenuity and ability cannot subdue evil. We're told that no one had the strength to subdue this man in verse 4. And we could go on and see in Jude 9 how Michael, when he was dealing with the devil, would not even rebuke him personally. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. We could go on in Revelation chapter 12 and we could see a summary of the spiritual warfare that's taking place throughout all the ages of redemption and how impotent we are to deal with evil in and of ourselves. It is real and it is strong and it is outside of human means to subdue the filth, the number, the destruction, the power of evil magnifies in this passage, though, the glory of Christ. And as the storms immediately bowed to Christ, so also do the unclean spirits. Look at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And the word is a word that we often see translated worship prostrate. He fell down before him. Now, of course, this prostration is not of voluntary worship. It is because of the overcoming power of the glory of the Son of God. The demons immediately fall down before the Son of God. And although human strength and ingenuity cannot subdue evil, demons, secondly, demons cannot stand before the Son of God. When he saw him from afar, he ran and he bowed himself down. Christ's presence causes them to immediately bow. What chains and shackles could not do, Christ 
did instantly, just like the storm instantly subsided, the demons instantly fall down before the Son of God. Demons, we find in this passage, they know, they know the identity of Christ beyond question. What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Demons know the identity of Christ beyond question. And this is one of the passages. Remember in chapter 1, verse 1, Mark says, I'm writing to you about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And what Mark does throughout his gospel is produce evidence that Jesus is the Son of God and helps us to see the kind of beings that submit to the Son of God, the culmination will be at the cross. But in the meantime, even as his disciples struggle to recognize who Christ is, as the religious leaders reject the authority of Christ, yet here, these demons, these unclean spirits, These spiritual beings, they know the identity of Christ beyond question. This is a confession from the spiritual realm that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the King of kings, and even the demons know that, and they shudder. They confess Christ as one day all will. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 9 through 11 concludes with that statement that there is coming a day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Things in heaven and things on earth to the glory of God. This is a foretaste as the demons bow before the Lord. Their confession... In verse 7, what have you do, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Their confession emphasizes the uniqueness of Jesus' position. He is of the essence of the Father. He is the Son of God. The uniqueness of his position and also the universality of his power. What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God. It's a confession that God is the only God. God is the ruler of all the supposed false deities. Christ's presence causes these demons to bow. And the unclean location does not in any way, shape, or form diminish the power of Christ. Again, a city, an area influenced by Rome and influenced by Greek where pigs are raised to feed the Roman army very likely. This would have been a hated place, a despised place, a place where people would say, evil dwells here, what could we do about it? Yet it in no way diminished the power of Christ as the demons immediately respond to him His power extended beyond the borders of what they would have considered orthodox Judaism. Not only does the area, the unclean area, fail to diminish the authority of Christ, but the number does not diminish Christ's authority. 
Jesus has cast out demons. He did it in the synagogue in chapter 1. We're told of other instances where just generally those who were possessed by demons came to him and Jesus cast those demons out. But the uniqueness of this passage emphasizes that there are many, many demons, likely thousands of demons, a legion of demons. And that number in no way diminishes Christ's authority. In verse 13, he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out. They came out according to his command in verse 8. And they went in to the pigs. They were immediately responsive to Christ. That puts in perspective for us what's going to happen in eternity. In Matthew 25 and verse 41, we're told that hell is a place that God has prepared for the devil and his angels. And all those who are outside of Christ will spend eternity there with the devil and his angels. And, and if you want just a, a glimpse, an infinitesimally small glimpse of what it looks like to live for eternity with the devil and his angels, then look at the man with the unclean spirit. You will not be partying with your friends in hell. You will be forever tormented. You will be forever without relief under the eternal wrathful judgment of God. And in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, we're told that at the end of the millennium, as, as Satan gathers up his host to wage war against Christ, with a word, Christ defeats Satan and his host, and they, for, they are forever, with a word, cast into the lake of fire. It's done with a word. And so the, the number, the number has no effect on Christ because he is the son of God. And just like with a word, he cast, told the demons to come out of this man with a word, all the demons and all of, of Satan's host and Satan himself will one day be defeated by the Son of God. Demons cannot stand before the Son of God. Christ does with a word what the individual and the community could not do with massive effort, chaining and shackling and trying to restrain him. They couldn't do it. But with a word, Christ frees the man. Christ came to deliver from evil. And so as those who follow Christ, as those who are servants of Christ, that means that we also ought to be willing to confront evil. Now certainly, certainly we don't do it in the way that Christ does, but throughout the epistles, throughout Acts and the epistles, we see that those who follow Christ are called to maintain the righteousness of Christ before the onslaught of evil. I already mentioned Acts 5 where Peter stood against Ananias and Sapphira and the Lord struck them down. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, 
after Paul reminds Timothy of the confession of Christ at the end of chapter 3, Paul goes right into the reality that in the last days there will be deceitful spirits who teach the doctrine of demons through the mouths of those whose consciences are seared. And so Paul is calling Timothy, Timothy, you stand firm. You hold fast to the confession of Christ. You maintain the purity of the church through the sound teaching of Christ as explained from the Scriptures, as explained by the doctrine of the apostles, and you do that against the onslaught of false teaching that Paul identifies as demonic, as energized by demons. False teaching, sinful living, hypocrisy, all of those things. These are not, these are not just neutral things to overlook. These are, these are the influence of spiritual enemies of Christ. And so God calls his people to stand against evil. So turn, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. And look at this passage where, again, Paul is encouraging Timothy to stand. And he says to Timothy, on your part, verse 22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So he begins by telling Timothy, Timothy, as, as one called by God to preach the gospel, to stand for the truth, you have a personal responsibility to flee youthful passions and pursue what is right. Going on to verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What does Paul say happens in the church when people are led astray and they go after their senses and they reject authority and they refuse to repent and, and all of these other things that are described in the pastoral epistles and, and the other epistles where we're called to live a life that is, that is constructed by the thinking of Christ. What is happening? What is, what Paul says is that they've been entangled by the snare of the devil. This is not just a neutral slip up. There is spirit spiritual warfare at, at going on. There, there is eternity at stake. They've been, they've been captured from the snare of the devil. And Timothy is called to teach in such a way that God might lead them to repentance. And they might escape after having been captured to do not God's will, but the devil's will. What happens here? week in and week out as 
Christ is proclaimed, as the Son of God is proclaimed, is that the truth of God is being laid out so that those in Christ can see the propensities to the flesh and to evil and and can come in repentance, a repentance that God only gives. They can come in repentance and escape being captured by to doing the will of the devil. This is heavy stuff. This is weighty stuff. But at the same time, we are doing it in a glorious, victorious manner because we know that as Christ is proclaimed, as the glory of the Son of God is laid out, we are laying out the glory of the one before whom demons tremble before whom demons must fall. We are declaring Christ, who is the Savior, who is the victor. And so it is a glorious thing to side with Christ. It is a glorious thing to proclaim that He reigns. He is King over spirits. And oh, that you would bow before the King. So we have seen that demons cannot stand before the Son of God. As we move into the second part, and I, I know I haven't spent a lot of time with the pigs. You know, there, there's some ethicists that say, well, what, what about the pigs? That was so destructive of Jesus. Well, I don't know. I mean, we have a feral pig problem in our own country, and people are destroying pigs right and left. But the point of the passage isn't what Jesus did with the pigs. The point of the passage is that Jesus had power over the spirits, and it wasn't Jesus that did anything to the pigs. It was the demons. All we own, all we have, everything that's made belongs to God. He's the creator of it all. And even the destructiveness of demons, the destructiveness of demons, because it's the demons that are culpable. It's the demons that are culpable. It is entirely under the control of the Son of God. And it's not a question of how could that many pigs be destroyed, it's a question of how could, how could the whole world not be destroyed? Folks, evil unleashed would be destructive to the entire world. Christ reigns. And we begin, when, when these questions come up, we, we, just, we simply begin with the statements of Scripture that says, everything that Jesus did, He did according to the will of His Father. In fact, that's how he prays in John 17. And so we know that what Jesus allowed to happen here was perfectly in keeping with the will of the Father as as demons were sent out from a human being, an eternal soul, and were given leave to go into the pigs. And it often is simply, the questions that arise are simply nothing more than a betrayal of a misunderstanding of the value of a human soul in the eyes of God. 
Yes, the pigs were destroyed, but the pigs were destroyed to demonstrate, to emphasize the destructive nature of evil. And only 2,000 of them were destroyed. Christ is the king. But those who were around didn't necessarily appreciate what they saw. And so we find next, third this morning, that living in darkness does bring terror before the Son of God. Living in darkness brings terror before the Son of God. Look at verse 14 as the pigs are drowned and the herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country and the people came to see what what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Living in darkness brings terror before the Son of God. Christ here represents the, the collapse, perhaps, of some economic gain. But ultimately, there's a spiritual fear. I mean, it was, it was really bad when you had this man that was out of control, but at least, you could, at least he was in the tombs and away from things. Well, well, now there's a greater spiritual power at work and a power at work over the evil that you thought you could kind of control a little bit. And they're terrified. They're terrified both on the material side and on the spiritual side. As we think about this response here, we have a a parallel response in Revelation chapter 18. In Revelation chapter 18, God reveals to John the downfall of Babylon which essentially stands for the world system. And you see the complete economic collapse in the presence of Christ. It's a collapse that in chapter 19, God's people, when when God destroys the cosmos, when God destroys in judgment the, the, the economic structures of this world that so often are the engines of evil, As described in chapter 18, God's people's response to that is, Hallelujah! He reigns. But what we find as Babylon is collapsing in verse 15 of Revelation 18, it says, The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. There's coming a day when all that the world glories in will be no more. All that those who live for money All of those who live for pleasure, for not working as soon as they can to enjoy life, it's done. The whole thing collapses. 
And it's a fearful day. And man intuitively, although he might not say it, he recognizes it because again, Romans 1, man suppresses the truth. But here in this region, the judgment of the Son of God has come in vivid relief as 2,000 pigs destroy themselves according to what the Lord permitted. There is a collapse coming, and those who live in darkness are in terror before the Son of God. One commentator says that they feared further material losses. If one with such power should remain within their borders, they were more concerned to protect their financial interest than to rejoice in the deliverance of the neighborhood demoniac. And the serious nature of this is that apart from the mercy of Christ, and, and Christ will find was very merciful because he, he told the demoniac, you stay and you proclaim what great things God has done for you. You proclaim the mercy of God. This is the first, one of the first commissioned Gentile missionaries that we have. But apart from the mercy of God in the lives of the herdsmen and the lives of those who rejected Christ, the, the sad reality is that their rejection of Christ indicated that their ultimate destiny was going to be with the demons who just drowned those pigs. And Jesus says in Mark 8, 34 through 38, as he, as he delineates the call for discipleship, he says, look, if you gain the whole world, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And here we have these people who are concerned with the things of this world. They're afraid of Christ. They reject Christ. They beg him to leave. They love the world and the, and the, and the, Words of Christ resound and that says, look, if you want to save your life, you can guarantee that you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. But those who live in darkness are terrified before the Son of God. The glorious presence of Christ, the glory of the Son of God is absolutely unsettling to the darkened soul. Can you imagine this? I mean, here's this man that's out of control, that's utterly chaotic, and probably the shrieks that he shrieked in the hills reverberated in their ears, but the silence now was almost eerie. And the King of kings and the Lord of the lords, the one who has displayed such power, they say, go away from us. We don't want you. The darkened soul, the darkened soul is so blind and so hard that the most glorious manifestations of Christ are rejected. It's an insane soul. Proverbs 4.19 says the wicked, they, they go in darkness and they don't even know over what they stumble. Depart from us. And Jesus, verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, according to their wishes, he left. What a sad, sad 
record. Leave us, Jesus. And he did. Living in darkness brings terror before the Son of God. Those who rejected him, though, will one day stand before him. And they will bow. But finally, fourth, receiving mercy. How he has had mercy on you. Receiving mercy brings peace before the Son of God. Here's this man. In verse 5, he's night and day among the tombs and on the hills, crying out, cutting himself with stones. The picture is that he's always moving. His life is chaotic. He's shrieking. He's cutting himself, going from tomb to tomb, utterly out of control. His life is in chaos. And and folks, that's the life of darkness. Lives of darkness are in utter chaos. They can never find a resting place. But verse 15, they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. Complete transformation. He went from out of control to self-controlled and sitting at Jesus' feet. You could say in some ways this is, this is Mark's version of Mary and Martha. Only it's in the same guy. In a much worse condition than Martha was in. He was sitting at Christ's feet. Again, to quote one of the commentators, I think he just says it so well here, the composure of the healed demoniac is a counterpart to the great calm on the lake after the storm Both outer and inner storms have been quelled by the authority of Jesus. Like the Spirit resting order from the depths and darkness, Jesus brings creation out of chaos. And this is exactly what Paul describes takes place when people are brought to Christ. It's the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shines in and make someone a new creature in Christ. Brings order out of the chaos. Creates a new man. The old man is put away. You are now a new man in Christ. And so we see what that receiving mercy in this passage, it transforms entirely. And it instills a longing for Christ. Look at verse 18. He was, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. What is, what is one of the evidences of a new life in Christ? Well, one of the evidences is that you long to be with Christ. Christ is the foremost in your affections. You want to be with him and you love to be with his people who are the body of Christ. It delights you to come together with the people of God. On the negative side, what a horrible thing it is when when people desire to not be with the people of God. When they desire to not be under the preaching of the word of God. No, that's not how Christians live. 
Those who are transformed, they want to be with Christ. They want to be where Christ is lifted up. They want to be where their hearts and minds are being prepared for the day when they will stand before Christ, when they will stand face to face before the Savior who redeemed them and delivered them. He begged him, this man who was impure, this man who was shrieking out, this man who was utterly unclean, now longed for the one who was holy and pure and undefiled. What a transformation. Saving mercy instills a longing for Christ, and saving mercy results in obeying Christ. You know, this is... This is the one request that Jesus denies. <laughs> the demon said, can we go into the pigs? Jesus said, yes. The people said, leave. Jesus said, okay. The man says, can I go with you? And Jesus says, go home. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. No, You can't come with me now, but you can go tell about me. Go proclaim the great things that I have done. And and what we find in verse 20, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis and that whole region, that area known for those 10 cities, how much Jesus had done for him and everybody marveled doesn't say who believed and who didn't, but people marveled. He obeyed. Saving mercy results in obeying Christ, and saving mercy also leads to a bold proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's much we could say just on these last two verses, but one very convicting and simple point of application Do those close to you know the great things that he has done for you? Go home. Go home and tell your friends, to your friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. It's remarkable that also in this passage, as, as Jesus leaves the cleansed man there, He displays mercy to those who rejected him by leaving a messenger of grace to proclaim the mercy of God. Oh, we have have been delivered by the mercy of the Lord. We, We deserve nothing. We deserve nothing but lives that look like the demoniac in the first five verses of this passage. That's what life should look like for us because of our innate rejection of God, out of control, full of outbursts, full of lust, harming ourselves, shrieking out. But God showed mercy. Jesus is full of mercy. Listen to these passages as we... Wrap up this morning, Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, 
so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He saved us according to His mercy. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ delivered you. He delivered you from an eternity shared with the devil and his angels. That's what we deserve. He has done great things for you. You are the object of his mercy. Tell what he has done. And again, I would appeal to those who are outside of Christ and are hearing this this morning. Rejecting Christ is aligning with Satan. Rejecting Christ is to begin sealing your eternity with the devil and his angels. To fear following Christ because of material loss is to embrace the thinking of this world, a thinking of the world system that will collapse. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Christ, just like he is king over the storms, He is king over the spirits. The Son of God reigns supreme, and there is nothing, believer, there is nothing that will separate you from the love of God in Christ. There's another rich incarnation hymn, and it declares an invitation. I close with this. It's from angels from the realms of glory. Sinners! Sinners wrong with true repentance, doomed for guilt to endless pains. Justice now revokes the sentence. Mercy calls you. Break your chains. Come and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ. Worship Christ, the newborn king. And that was the song of the angels. He was the newborn king. Now he is the crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, and interceding and returning king of kings. Oh, come and worship Christ, the king of kings. Father God, thank you for Christ, our Savior. Thank you for all that is in him. Thank you for his mercy And for his grace, for his dominion, we cast ourselves entirely on your care in him. Thank you, Christ, for redeeming us, for saving us. We thank you, Spirit of God, for dwelling in us. May you do the great work that you intend through your word today. Draw hearts to yourself. Convict of sin. Strengthen your people in the truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.